This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. When we shop for a car, oftentimes we're drawn to a particular style, including elements that make it distinct from other vehicles. That concept of a stylish car was started almost a century ago by a man named Harley Earl, a Michigander by birth. He moved to Hollywood before that town's true explosion, taking the skills he learned at his father's carriage shop to make beautiful cars for the elite there. He was eventually recruited back home to Michigan by General Motors. His artistic creativity really did change the auto industry. His story is chronicled in a new book titled Fins, Harley Earl, The Rise of General Motors, and The Glory Days of Detroit. Bill Needleseeder is the author of the book, and he joins us right now. Bill, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. And I want to start because the idea, I think, at times behind books are great places to start to find out where this came from. So tell us how you got to know the story of Harley Earl and what was it that attracted you so much? Well, I, I originally set out to write a book about the car business in the 1950s because when I grew up in the 1950s, my dad was in the car business. And I remembered it as a really magical time. I remember the moment the Steve Cressone in 1955 on a hot summer evening when he pulled into our driveway with a pink and white uh, DeSoto Fire Dome hardtop, and all the kids <laughs> came running down the street from the from the ice cream truck to climb all over the car. And from that moment on, cars were it for me. Right. And so I just kind of wanted to write a book about that. And when I started researching it, I stumbled onto right away Harley Rowe, who I'd never heard of. I thought he was really about cars. And I started looking into his history, and all of a sudden, I'm writing a history of how the car business started. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know? it's certainly it's hard to fascinating, you know. It, it's certainly hard to get kids away from the uh, from the ice cream truck coming down the street. So right, exactly. <laughs> and, and I was a star, you know. I mean, my dad had that car, so I, yeah. and, and he was like a prince of the uh, of the city, you know. Back at the time, if you worked in the car business in the 1950s. You know, you were you were it, man. It was it was cool, and he was Don Draper. So well, tell that's it what started it all. Part of this it, it deals with Hollywood and 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 being out in California. How was it that that Harley Earl and his family got out to California in the first place? As I mentioned earlier, he was born in Michigan. Well, actually, actually he wasn't. He oh. was born in Hollywood. His oh, okay. family came. His came from Michigan. Came across in, literally in a in a in a covered wagon. You know, across yeah. the plains in a covered wagon, and uh, uh, and he, you know, his father uh, came from from Michigan uh, and settled in in, in uh, uh, Southern California and opened up a, a carriage shop, and they they moved from downtown L.A. into a little dirt street village up in the hills uh, called Hollywood. It's you know at the almost the exact minute. That uh, D.W. Griffith and 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 uh, arrived with a camera crew and they started shooting movies in Hollywood, uh, silent movies in this little town because it was sunshining all the time and the first thing you need you know to make movies, moving pictures was you know vehicles. They, right. All of a sudden, his dad was making Roman chariots and chuck wagons and and stagecoaches for the movie business and and that's how Harley, as a teenager, got to. To see and hang around Sesame the Mill and these other people, and he ended up, you know, uh, taking what he learned as a carriage maker in his dad's shop to making fancy car bodies uh, for silent film stars, you know, like Tom Mix and Fatty Arbuckle and, 
you know, uh, and the like. And, and they had all the money in the world, and they weren't satisfied with the clunky-looking vehicles that were being churned out of Detroit. Uh, you know, Model Ts were not it. Right. Them. They wanted something, you know, flashy, and you know, and they and, they, and that's what he did for them. He was the first sort of car customizer. And, and certainly, as you're talking about Hollywood, as it was starting to develop with these films, the money then starts to, you know, to show its its presence there. And that probably does allow Harley to be able to to really kind of develop and, and kind of, you know, play with some ideas in terms of, of what cars should look like. Oh, absolutely. These were flamboyant people that by nature. That's what they were. So they wanted some flamboyance. He played that. He was sort of a flamboyant show, show business kind of person anyway and that's what that's what uh, Cecil B. DeMille saw in him that's why he sort of took him under his, his wing and and mentored him a, bit, a little bit and 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 Harley got to participate in the birth of the movie business and the car business and they yeah. were kind of joining for a while because the first thing if you're making a moving picture you you want to film things that are moving you know and horses and wagons were one but cars were the big thing you know they were coming on so those two industries developed together. They became very uniquely American. How much do you think th- this love of design, and you mentioned, obviously, in the book, he you know recruited back to Detroit, but how much do you think his love of design really helped Detroit have its own love of design, all of the automakers, to what we see today? I think it made all the difference in the world, and it made all the difference to how America developed. I mean, it's sort of unsung, but... I mean, Henry Ford, uh, he produced a very utilitarian car. He kept selling it for 15 years with the same car, wouldn't change it. And everybody that, you know, could afford a car had a car. And they would replace it, you know, every seven or eight years. And General Motors was this company that was trying to compete with Ford. And they, they realized they couldn't possibly do it on a production and try to outproduce him unless they could figure out a way to make their cars look better and, and change their looks more often. Uh, because he did never change his. That was the chink in the armor. So they heard about Harley, they brought him to Detroit, and they hired him to figure out a way to do this on a grand scale, which is very expensive to do. They didn't want to shut down their factories and have to retool every other year that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So he he was a designer, but he was also he, he, he figured out how to make a system that made it affordable, and, and there was a sort of a constant, gradual change so that every year General Motors cars looked a little different than the year before, but not so different that it would hurt the resale. And that's how General Motors not only, you know, beat Ford, that yeah. Ford, but became the most successful corporation on the planet. Uh, and so then, you know, and then you, you can make the leap. It, it's, it might be a bit of a leap, but, you know, it's arguable. Then when all of a sudden the United States, which had become a car economy, this was our defining product, when we were attacked by a, a, another country and all of a sudden we're at war with, with our own military being the 18th largest in the world, and we were at war with Germany and, and Italy, which have been building up their, their military forces for a long time. We were the best-equipped country in the world to engage in global warfare. Yeah. Those, they switched those plants to making bombers and tanks in weeks. Bill, and so, yeah. I, I was, I was going to say, I wanted to reintroduce you. Bill Nadelsader, who is the author of the book Fins, Harley Earl, The Rise of General Motors and the Glory Days of Detroit, joining us on the phone right now. You start out the book by talking about the dedication of, of the GM Technical Center, which opened in, what, 1956. Take, right. take, take us into the importance of that event. Well, it was it was 
very symbolic because what they were doing is that they were uh, the, the guys who had sort of came up with the idea of, of building this this thing. It was it was a testament to to the possibilities of of the company and America. Uh, it was 1956. It was after the war. Uh, it was it was it was the apex of the country at that point. We were we were the most powerful political uh, uh, economic uh, force on, on on earth. And they were trying to make something that lasted, that spoke to what they'd accomplished and what the future might hold for, you know, for all of us. And, uh, you know, they, they attracted everyone. You know, the, the, the cream of the crop of the American, of the brain trust of America came to this dedication. There's never been anything like it before uh, in terms of how it looked. Uh, it was very, very, very modern. Uh, it was classic uh, and uh, it was quite a big deal. So I, when I when I read about that, I realized that I had to start at that moment. I had yeah. to start the book right then. You all, then, yeah. No, finish up. I'm sorry. No, because that that's that's that's. And then you then you then things after that, you know, kind of went a different way. You know, it, it didn't work out exactly the way we thought. You know, they thought at the time they couldn't foresee at that moment uh, that there would ever be a time when General Motors. And, you know, Detroit would declare bankruptcy. It yeah. didn't seem possible that would ever happen, but it did. Well, and, and going back, I guess, even a little bit further in history, I, I don't think that there was a time where uh, a lot of people early on believed that, that Ford could have the competition that it did from other automakers. If you're going back, you know, into the early days of the Model T and then as that started to develop out a little bit. Well, that's that's why that's why General Motors decided to hire Harley. It was sort of a desperation move. They saw that they could not compete with General Motors in terms of numbers, in terms of uh, the way it was set up. They they would take the, the national treasury to invest to try and beat him. So they tried to figure out a way around it to go at it a different way, and that's what made eventually that they created a desire in Americans, or they helped create it. We kind of had that in us anyway. A desire for uh, something more stylish, something that said something about us, who we were, something like from the movies, you know, yeah. where, where we wanted more than transportation. Yeah, yeah, we can get transportation. We can all get that. But I want something that says something about me or, or describes how I feel about things. And they like wild colors. And, you know, man. How much? Uh, when was the last time you saw a green car? Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much influence do you think Harley Earl still has in Detroit today? You know, that's you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I think he's honored. I think they sort of forgotten about him a lot. But I think the people who 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 know calls and, and know the history of the business know what he what he accomplished. But I don't see it out there. I mean, you know, I, cars are just monotone. There's gray and uh, white and black, and uh, you know. <laughs> And they're all the same. You know, they all look uh, kind of the same. They're also the same shape. Uh, and, and, you know, it, 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 they clearly took the fins thing too far. Sure, in the 50s, yeah. But, but I saw the fins when I was writing. So I came to see the fins as fins were like a metaphor yeah. for a period of time, of a, a time of exuberance and, and, and hope and flashiness and, you know, arrogance or whatever. But, you know, uh, I don't I don't see that anymore. I mean, if you... I mean, I've driven the Tesla, and they're an amazing car. You know, they're just amazing. But, but you know, next to a, a 55 uh, Chevy, with you know, it's like a giant iPad, you know? Yeah. 
you know? Well, and, you, you mentioned that you call uh, Harley Earl kind of a combination of Steve Jobs and Tom Ford. Take us yeah. into that combination, please. Well, he, he, he was the first one who started talking and writing things about me. Uh, GM literature started talking about the way things looked. That, that, that his idea was that, no, no, you know, form is, is as important as function. He would he would write things and they would they would put things in their in their in their literature a couple of literature that sounded like Steve Jobs had written them you know three years ago. Uh, well, yeah, it was, it was important that it worked, but how does it look? What does it look like? How can we make it look better yeah. as it's driving from here to there? That was all what he was about. And what does the public want? It's got to look cool too. Well, that hadn't occurred to everybody. Uh, in, uh, uh, industrial design was just starting back then, and there wasn't even a profession, a recognized profession for automobile styling. It had been done by engineers, stodgy old engineers who would, you know, literally their idea of designing a car was bolting fenders and, and, a, and a little, you know, a passenger capsule to a, a chassis, yeah. which was, was all about engineering. And he changed it. He changed it from an engineering culture to a styling culture. I guess when you look at, at how his career and his life played out, and obviously the development of Hollywood, and then obviously the development of the auto industry, these were really kind of three things that timing-wise worked out perfectly together. You had the development of Hollywood. You obviously right. had the connection with the Earl family, with the dad, and then, and then with Harley as well. And then eventually you had the build-out of the auto industry in Detroit. Yeah. You know, it was it was it was it was a, 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 a conflux of things that, that took place that made it all happen. I don't did that make up a word there. Conflux. I don't know. That's right. Uh, <laughs> as long as it communicates. Exactly. Yes. But that's kind of what happened. It, it, you know, Harley was in the right moment. He was the right person. He had the right set, uh, uh, talent. Uh, and if he had not met. Uh, uh, you know, the, the famous movie director who taught him that, that cars were more than just a conveyance. They were something else. You know, they were uh, they were they were a metaphor for, you know, uh, mankind's dreams of motion and speed. Uh, it may have gone a different way. I mean, cars would have developed. There would have been a car business. Would it have been as big as it did as it became by 1955, you know, it was didn't take that long for them to be making, you know, six million cars a year from, you know, a hundred, you know. So, yeah, it was and that was styling that did it, not not engineering. And some of um, and some of those cars that are, you know, that that he was involved with and, and the idea, as you mentioned, with Vins, I mean, those are some for collectors. Those are some of the still most valuable cars out there. Oh, Sure. I mean, you know, you know, it's it, it's arguably, arguably true that the fins of the '59 Cadillac are the defining visual image of the 1950s to most people. Everyone knows what that fin looks like. Now, he couldn't tell you. You know, he showed him a part of another car. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a small portion doesn't have the same resonance. That particular thing, which was the fin that ended all fins that was as high as they got as big as they got as exuberant as they got uh and in, in a sense the end of them uh, and they were also quite dangerous you know to human bodies but um that that helped the demise but yeah 
Take us into that recruitment process uh, of him coming back, Harley Earl coming back to Detroit and and GM. You touched on it a little bit, but uh, you mentioned the fact that that General Motors, it it was kind of a last-ditch effort uh, for them because of of the dominant position that Ford had uh, at that period of time, correct? Oh, yeah. Ford was, you know, had three-fourths of the cars on the road at the time were, were Fords. Most people had never owned a car but a Ford, and, and uh, GM was a distant second and also ran. And, um, you know, they had to figure out something, and it was, it was oh, the, the, the chairman who had the idea of, you know, well, we, we need to make them look different more often. And, and one of the Fisher brothers, who was the executive for the company, had gone out to to Hollywood, and he had he had met their 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 dealer, their their big Cadillac dealer on the West Coast, and who and who introduced him to Harley, who was doing you know custom custom work for you know rich uh, movie people out there, yeah. and uh, and Larry Fisher was impressed, and he went back and said, hey, you know, I met this guy out in California, this young guy, who might really be able to do this for us, so they yeah. interviewed him. And they hired him, and he, you know, he left California with his family and went back to uh, to um, um, uh, Detroit. And never returned to California to live. I mean, he he then, you know, he spent the rest of his career in in Detroit. Um, and he figured out, you know, he he you know, started from scratch, started hiring, you know, actually started hiring sculptors from art schools and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, to, to and putting them to work in this. Big manufacturing, you know, uh, entity. You know, bizarre if you really think about it. So let's go out and hire some sculptors, you know, and we'll put them to work in this this little thing here, and we'll make. The other thing he did was he he was the first person to use modeling clay to make full size models of cars. Okay, before yeah. they decided before they decided to uh, to actually produce them and, and invest the money and then tool and it wouldn't just be a line drawing on a big piece of paper, which is what it was before. He would make these cars made out of clay, and they would look so real that you could walk up to them and expect to open the door, climb inside, and drive off in them. Uh, you know, uh, and so that, that was, and that's that's changed everything. Everybody's right. doing that's the way they still do it today. They still use the modeling clay, you know, yep. as, as the as the basic you know, underlying thing to make a, a car body to start, you know, how it looks and, you know, and all that. So his, his, in, his influence on the industry is incalculable. Um, and the, the innovations that came up, because what he would do, he would, he would start instead of it, he put, he put the cart before the horse, yeah. or the, you know, and he would say, well, well, yeah, but you would start with, they would start with under Harley, you would start with how you wanted it to look. And before that, the engineers would say, well, you can't do that because you, you couldn't make it. You do this again. And then he would show them, well, yeah, but here's what we want it to look like. So how do you change the chassis? How do you lower this? How do you to make it look like that? And he forced that, and, and they didn't want to do that. The engineers, the engineering culture at, at General Motors was not in the, in the beginning uh, uh, in favor of Harley, they the engineers were in charge, and they didn't need some fancy dressed guy from Hollywood telling them what to do. And they call him a pansy and a sissy, and you know because he he was very he was very uh, flamboyantly dressed compared to them. He had these right. elegant clothes and colors and pink socks and whatever else because he was a designer, you know. And they wore you know dark suits and suspenders and Homburgs. Sure. 
And, you know, they didn't care about that stuff. You know, they wore their hats indoors all the time. You know. So you, there was a big culture clash there that he won. You tell an interesting story in the book about the LeSabre, which is it, yeah. it, it's one of those uh, kind of iconic cars, especially, I guess, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but about how the LeSabre debuted, uh, which and you basically it debuted from what I read at at Watkins Glen, one of the iconic racetracks uh, right. of America. It was one of the first public appearances. Yeah, they took it up there to to kind of show it off. It was his personal car. Uh, it was a one off. They only made you know there I mean, there might have been a couple models over a period of years, but it was not never put into production as a production car. Yeah, it was wholly experimental, and it looked like nothing anyone had ever seen. So. He went up there to Watkins Glen to show it off. And as it turns out, that was the weekend that he got the idea for the Corvette because he was up there showing off this exotic convertible that had actually had computers on board and a, a, a tank for, for you know, high-octane alcohol-based fuel and whatever. And he saw, he noticed all these college students driving MGs and little little, you know, uh, foreign, mostly English sports cars up there, right? And he realized that that, that this was the this was the coming coming buyers, you know. And there wasn't a, an American car made for them, an inexpensive uh, uh, sports car uh, like an MG. So he went back to to Detroit and said, "Okay, let's do this. Let's make the first real American sports car." I mean, the well, Sabre was a two-seater convertible, but it weighed 5,000 pounds. Right. You know, it wasn't a sports car in any stretch of the imagination. But still the still the LeSabre, you write, it, it did make a t- basically a tour uh, around oh, yeah. to a variety of different locations, both in the U.S. and overseas, correct? Oh, yeah. They took, they, they took it to, uh, you know, uh, General Eisenhower's command headquarters <laughs> in France after the war and, and let him, you know— Get in it and, and make the auto. But they had they had this one of the innovations it, it, it when it rained, you know, it, it had a it had a sensor that would that the drop of a rain would raise the ways the convertible top. Well, this is yeah. way before anything like that ever happened. And they would they would test it with a little eye drop, but they showed them how to do it. And, and you know, Eisenhower, who had just moved armies all over all over the all over the continent, you know. Yeah. I uh, got a big kick out of being able to sit there and do a little eye drop and watch this thing go up. There's pictures of him laughing, you know, while he did this. You, uh, I wanted to ask you before we're getting towards the end here. I wanted to ask you about the Corvette for a second because the Corvette, the early days of the Corvette, and then what it became in the in the seventies and eighties and nineties really are are kind of uh, different vehicles in in part because of the body style. Right. Yeah. Well, the Corvette almost failed because it didn't sell hardly at all because his idea of this uh, this pared down, you know, uh, uh, sports car was one thing, uh, but they, the the price that they that they came up with, and by the time they got it ready for production, those those, those college students who were driving the MGs couldn't afford the three thirty five hundred dollars to buy a Corvette. So you know, they were trying to so then they were trying to sell the Corvette to you know, well-to-do middle-aged people, and they didn't want a car that was pared down by that. So it struggled uh, in the first couple of years and was 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 beaten in sales badly by the, by the Thunderbird, who which was designed by one of Harley's uh, uh, trained uh, designers. 
um, you know, who, who you know, uh, Frank Hershey, who is the guy, by the way, ironically, was a guy who first designed the first fins. They put in the 48 Cadillac, and after that he got fired at GM. He went to Ford, right. and he designed the, the, the 55 T-Bird. Great story. They are, and and it's amazing because it is it is a it is a true look at at America and how America developed over time. And and I want to ask you in in the last minute or so that we have, as people pick this book up and and they go through it, what do you think? What do you hope is the lasting memory for people out of this story of Harley Earl? Oh, just how the country developed. I mean, just what it was like in the 50s. We always hear about, you know, yeah, it was when America was great. That's what everybody waxes poetic about that. Well, it really was in a lot of ways great. It wasn't quite so rosy as we remembered it, but this is how we got there. It's how we became, you know, the car became our defining product to the world. Right. Uh, and when our economy became dependent upon it, if, if, if sales of GM went down, we had a recession, like instantly. Uh, that wasn't a good thing. But, you know, it, it was just, it's a memory of a time. It was important. Uh, it, it, you know, it's important to, to know history to, to, to uh, figure out what's, what's coming next, you know. And, uh, uh, and you know, that, that's it. I kind of wanted to, I wanted, when I was writing it, I wanted it not to be a, a book just for car geeks uh, and the people who read car magazines. I, I, I kept thinking, you know, I want women to read this and just see this is a rollicking good story about yeah. an amazing time in America. It had to do with car, you know, uh, uh, car making and car design and all that, but that's not really the story. The story is kind of about America and, and, a, and a progress that we made and how it all happened and how this crazy six-foot, six-stuttering, dyslexic yeah. designer affected it all yeah bill thanks bill thanks very much thanks very much for your time it's a fantastic book and uh all the best with it thank you thanks for having me thank you bill nadelsader who uh is the author of the book fins harley earl the rise of general motors and the glory days of detroit for more insight from knowledge at wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu 